You're listening to Sassmouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. When Autumn Leaves was released in 1956, Joan Crawford defied the odds for a film star of her vintage. She was 50 years old, yet she was top-billed in a romantic melodrama with a much younger man, one played by Cliff Robertson. Autumn Leaves combines a May-December love story with the Bluebeard tale, tapping into the fear women have about living with a man whose personality suddenly turns violent, a groom who transforms from Romeo to rogue. Joan plays a woman whose means of independence, a typewriter, is later used as a weapon against her. Joan's role as Millicent Weatherby cut close to the bone because it had an uncanny parallel to her personal life. She didn't have to wonder what it was like to live with a man who changed overnight. She was living it. Joan recalled in her memoir, I had a lot of suffering to do in this picture. It was easy. I was suffering over the uneasiness of my marriage. Months before production began, Joan married her fourth husband, Pepsi tycoon Alfred Steele. Steele had pursued her for months, which began with a phone call while she was living in her dressing room during production of Female on the Beach. Once Steele realized that Joan was receptive to his romantic overtures, he quickly dropped his wife Lillian as if she were a case of Coca-Cola. In Joan's recollection, Al was an ardent wooer. He was a gentleman, solicitous, and he was accomplished in his own right. After marriage to three insecure actors, he must have made it seem like his corporate profile made him confident enough to handle being married to a film star. Al proposed the merger. Joan decided to take the plunge. Friends back east East had arranged a reception that swelled to a guest list of 500. Costumes designed by Jean-Louis for her role in Queen Bee were purchased from Columbia to serve as part of her trousseau for her honeymoon. Late one evening, three weeks before the ceremony, Al convinced Joan to fly to Las Vegas and elope. He didn't give her any time to think. Joan hated to board a plane. She never flew, but she did it to please him. She also hated to miss a big party in her honor, but again, she did it to please him. They exchanged vows at 2 a.m. on the 10th of May, 1955. Once they sailed to their honeymoon in Europe, Al Steele turned from Jekyll to Hyde. 
ship passengers whispered about the pyrotechnic rows coming from the newlywed cabin day and night. The groom picked fights, insisted that his bride acquiesce, playing Petruchio in his own private revival of The Taming of the Shrew. In her memoir, Joan noted that her honeymoon amounted to a battle royale. Al's business cronies had warned him that film stars were spoiled and headstrong. If he didn't take charge right away, they told him, she would run him into the ground and use him as a doormat. Al bullied Joan and smacked her around. During their stay in Capri, he bought her an Italian heirloom, a diamond plume brooch. As Al bestowed it to her, he called it her service stripes, which she had earned in combat. The six-inch diamond brooch was her medal of honor. Like a true corporate thug, Al Steele believed he could act like a brute and then smooth everything over by throwing cash around. When the honeymoon was over, the battle royale continued in Hollywood. In her Brentwood home, where she had lived independently without a husband for 10 years, Joan realized she had made a mistake. She might have fled to Reno if not for the obligations of her contract with Columbia. After production began on Autumn Leaves, Al gave her a black eye one night, which prevented her from appearing before the camera the following day. Now his irrational mood swings and violence were interfering with her career, and Joan simply could not tolerate that. Joan Crawford felt trapped. She was living with a monster. Instead of admitting a mistake and getting renovated, as Walter Winchell used to say, she resolved to remedy the situation as best she could. She had scheduled in her contract a week off from film production to accompany Al to a national Pepsi convention in Florida. Joan appeared there, flashing the full wattage of her film star power. She was coiffed, dressed, and accessorized with picture hats to upstage any mere executive. Joan believed that by playing the role of the wife, the good wife, attending all the meetings, shaking all the hands, and giving Pepsi quotes to the press, that she reformed Al Steele, that her performance was strong enough she could change her husband into a good man. By demonstrating that she was an asset to him, not just some little house frau that he could bully. Autumn Leaves was the second film in a three-picture deal Joan signed for Columbia Studio. It started with Queen Bee in 1955 and ended with the story of Esther Costello in 1956. Harry Cohen had a track record of backing stars who were counted out by other studios and relied on his own ability to identify talent. Back in 1942, Joan had filmed They All Kissed the Bride in Columbia, taking over for Carol Lombard after the comedian's tragic death in 1942. After Joan had, fin uh, had also finished um, Harry and Craig there for Columbia years later. And Joan had almost done a picture for Columbia in 1953 when she was nearly cast as Karen Holmes in From Here to Eternity playing the commander's wife who has an affair with Burt Lancaster. As the production backstory goes for that picture, negotiations were called off when Joan made demands about hiring Sheila O'Brien for costumes. 
Reportedly, Harry thought Joan asked for too much and cast Deborah Carr instead. But mostly, Harry was capable of shedding feuds when necessary for a good picture. They were cordial members of the film colony, even after Joan once told Harry, my dogs have better table manners. Biographer Bob Thomas includes a spicy tale about Joan meeting Harry in his office. The studio boss grew excited at the prospect of the big pictures they were going to make in this three-picture deal. In his excitement, Harry stood up and began a spirited game of pocket pool in his trousers, while Joan sat on the other side of his desk. By this time in her career, she was well used to the shenanigans from Hollywood moguls. Joan advised Harry to keep it in his pants. She was having lunch with his wife and sons the following day. The picture was originally titled The Way We Are. Columbia changed it to Autumn Leaves after they purchased the rights to Nat King Cole's hit song. Columbia signed Robert Aldrich to direct. Aldrich was better known for macho productions like Apache, Vera Cruz, and Kiss Me Deadly. He had never directed a woman's picture. He agreed to Autumn Leaves in response to critics who gave out to him about the stories he made full of violence and vengeance. Aldrich felt it was time to try something different. A good soap opera, he thought, would do just that. Aldrich had an eye out for a good story. He was friends with Ingo Preminger, the director Otto Preminger's brother. Ingo was an agent who specialized in representing writers who were on the blacklist. Screenwriter Hugo Butler was one of his clients. Hugo and his wife Jean Ruverall, who was also a writer, were living in Cuernavaca, Mexico. Hugo and Jean had left the United States to avoid a prison sentence that other writers in Hollywood received as a result of the HUAC hearings. They feared being separated from their four young children. In her memoir, Jean Ruverall recalled that for a long time after Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were executed, her eldest son had horrible nightmares. He believed the same thing would happen to his parents. Moving to Mexico was the best way to safeguard their family. Ingo Preminger had a system of getting work for blacklisted writers by using other studio writers to take a stand-in for the screen credit, and also they would work as a public face if the studio wanted someone for story meetings. Ingo called down to visit Hugo and Jean. They took him to float down a river lined with sugar cane outside of Cuernavaca, a popular place for locals to unwind. Ingo noted that floating downstream along the lush green sugar cane and the blue sun-dappled sky was like floating in the middle of Technicolor. Ingo mentioned that Aldrich was looking for a story idea. Hugo suggested he take a look at the serialized fiction that Jean had written for women's magazines. The magazine novellas, serialized, had kept the family solvent since wartime when Hugo was enlisted and made a mere $35 a month from the service. Ingo took one of the stories to Aldrich, who put it on the schedule after Vera Cruz. Jean made $5,500 for the story and the screenplay. 
It couldn't be more, Ingo explained, because it was out of pocket for Aldrich rather than directly from a studio. From the the $5,500, Gene had to pay one-fourth to Jack Jevney as a fee for using him as a studio front. Jevney had made his career during the silent era, writing scenarios for Douglas Fairbanks. By 1956, he was mostly retired, save for his role as a stand-in for blacklisted writers. But for a fee, he would take meetings with producers and executives, and the official screen credit. In her memoir, Jean wrote that Aldrich was often belligerent with studio executives, spoiling for a fight, but was always loyal and supportive to his creative team. So Jean wrote the screenplay from her original story, and then at night, Hugo would read the drafts and offer feedback. The relationship between director and star had a rocky start. Aldrich recalled that Joan requested the right for script changes. She wanted to bring in her own writer to go over the script. Aldrich refused. Then the night before the first day of production, he received a phone call from Joan at 2 o'clock in the morning. Joan informed him that she would not show up the following day without her writer. Aldrich replied that if Joan brought her writer, cameras would not roll. In his account, Aldrich refers only to Joan's writer, but fails to name the person, which makes it seem like Joan was planning to have her stenographer revise the script or something. In fact, the writer in question was Renald McDougall, the screenwriter credited with Mildred Pierce, and who was part of the team with producer Jerry Wald, who assisted Joan's comeback when she had left Metro for Warners. Joan trusted and had a rapport with McDougal, and that was the reason she chose him as director for Queen Bee the previous year. On the first day of the shoot, Joan arrived without McDougal. She was punctual, prepared, and did everything she was asked. For the first week of the the shoot, Aldrich remembered, Joan didn't speak to him aside from the bare minimum. Then the ice broke after one scene wrapped, and Aldrich, moved by Joan's performance, wiped away a tear from his eyes. Joan noticed it, and after that, the director and the star became friends. Nonetheless, in a later interview, Aldrich bristled. He complained, I could not get her to be a drab, aging woman, which threw off the balance of the picture. Aldrich was dismissive of Joan's glamour and allure, but he did know that Joan was a method actress of her own concoction. Chalk it up to his ego, perhaps, but Aldrich should have recognized that Joan had been in the Joan Crawford business much longer than himself, who was making his debut as a woman's picture director. As arguably the most durable star of the studio system, Joan knew what worked for her screen talent and image. She didn't get to the top of a cutthroat industry by trusting the word of just anyone. At another level, what Aldrich wanted just doesn't make sense in the picture. Had Joan played Millie in dowdy clothes as say he wanted a drab, aging woman, she would have been maybe resembled Ruth Donnelly as she appears in the picture at playing the apartment manager. 
in it, Ruth Donnelly wears oversized menswear. She wears uh, big, open, flowy shirts and baggy trousers. But if Joan appeared like that, it wouldn't explain the romance. Why would Cliff Robertson cross a dining room and ask to share the table with Joan unless she was beautiful and well-dressed? If I had to pick one scene that embodied the Crawford grit and inexhaustible energy which she brought to her screen career, it might well be the shot of her typing in the first scene of Autumn Leaves. Eyes locked on the page, keys thundering, Joan summons Alfred Lloyd, Lord Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade with her fingertips. She has the force of 600 men on horseback. In front of a typewriter, Joan exhibits forensic concentration, as if she should have one of those head mirrors that doctors wore in the examining room. There's something gallant about a woman and a typewriter. It provides a means of income, creative outlet, and connection with the outside world, especially for an isolated woman like Millie. For me, it calls to mind Marie Prevost in Three Wise Girls from 1932, who used a typewriter to address envelopes and to help her pay the bills. It also makes me think of Clara Bow, who was a recluse for years, except for the robust correspondence she conducted with her typewriter. Or Jackie Suzanne, who used a wedding gift typewriter to reinvent herself as a novelist when her career as an actress stalled. Joan and her typewriter and Autumn Leaves also seems like a reminder of the Lonely Hearts women who used a typewriter to find romance. The tempo that Aldrich sets for the dramatic highs and lows are leveled off and take a breather in quiet moments which are just as good like say Joan at the typewriter or when Joan and Ruth Donnelly are together in the supermarket. Or the scene where Joan goes to the symphony alone and Aldrich captures the essence of Millicent Weatherby's loneliness when she's out in public. In the concert hall, Millie sits in the middle row, complete, completely hemmed in by couples. And the cinematographer, Charles Lang, blocks out the audience in an inky shadow and lights Joan under the spotlight. Naked and exposed is how uncomfortable she feels being alone in public, how aware of it she is. As the flashback shows how she wound up being alone because she cared for her six father instead of marrying a suitor. The feeling continues that loneliness and isolation after the concert ends and the crowd exits the building with obvious anticipation for what's next in the evening, say dinner, drinks, or dancing, and Joan walks down the street alone. But she's reluctant to go back home. Aldrich creates a pensive mood, for Joan while she pauses in front of a restaurant. A neon sign flashes, good food, hardly a big sell. But Joan stands there in the dark and deliberates. Should she risk going inside? You can see her weighing the option. Will she feel awkward and more alone? Or should she go in and join the diners and feel like she had gotten out and done something? 
As a single woman, Millie calculates potential embarrassment in the smallest interactions. Remember, the picture is set during an era when women needed an escort to go to many public places. A woman alone was suspect. Was she a streetwalker, a sex worker? There's also this stigma single women were made to feel if they were out without a man. And today, there are still many women who wouldn't be caught dead at a dinner, uh, having dinner alone in a restaurant. The insecurity she feels alone in public intensifies when Cliff Robertson asks if he can join her table. In the scene, Jones smoothly creates a range of emotional responses. Initially, she's defensive and assumes it's some kind of prank that he's making fun of her. She's abrupt and terse. Then Joan switches to wariness, a sort of vulnerability, because her training as a woman kicks in, the way you're supposed to always be polite and accommodating to men. She doesn't want to be rude. She fiddles with the symphony program as a defense mechanism. So she's not so aware of herself or being looked at by a man. Flirting with Millie, Cliff Robertson's Bird Hansen tries to be charming with a remark about her handbag. He quips that the monogram, M.W., is the same no matter which way the purse falls. It's his way of observing that Joan seems sturdy, unsinkable. In crisp tailoring and exquisite grooming, not a wrinkle in sight or a hair out of place, she looks capable and confident. It's the reason why he asks to join her for dinner. For a man of a troubled mind, he could take solace in a self-possessed woman like Millie. Women like Millie use style as a sort of shield against calamity. Her purse, gloves, and wardrobe are tidy reminders that she's proper, orderly, and independent. Aesthetics are that kind of shield that keeps her safe from harm. For Joan's wardrobe, Jean-Louis used natural fabrics, cotton, wool, and linen, and classic lines fitted from the waist. The director felt her costumes were too good and should have been dowdier, but Joan knew better and knew that her style is what makes the romance believable because she's attractive and looks the part of a woman who can meet a crisis with a cool head. And viewers instantly understand why Cliff Robertson crosses the room and asks to sit down. So after a false start, Bert sweeps her off her feet with grand romantic gestures, gifts and declarations of love. They spend a month apart when Joan tells him to find a girl his own age. But when he returns, she suspends good judgment and marries him. Almost overnight, Millie discovers that Bert is a fabulist. He spins lies about his past and what he's doing presently. He conceals a troubled past and the source of the gifts he brings home. The initial scene of Millie meeting a deadline with her typewriter contrasts with the picture's climax, where Cliff Robertson uses it as a weapon and tries to drop it on her head, split it open like a melon. It's one of the most horrific scenes from the studio era. The honeymoon at that point is well and truly over. But the taboo on mental illness, when norms about strength and masculinity were deeply entrenched in the Cold War era, 
this kind of shame hangs over it and it prevents Joan's character from deciding on what she should do. That shame consists of wondering if it's her fault, if she can help him, if she can save him, if she can in some ways heal him. And the shame persists when she confronts Vera Miles and Lauren Green, who play Bert's ex-wife and father. To them, Bert is half a man, and Millie is also suspect if she settles for him, instead of locking him up in an asylum. Joan's tightly controlled performance is a masterclass in underplay. The Crawford technique relies on minimal movement, on keeping her body still, while most of the reaction occurs in her eyes. At turns, she's fragile, and other times she draws on mysterious reserves of strength and fortitude. And Charles Lang photographs Joan with strong arc lights, or arc lights combined with stark shadows to emphasize both her loneliness as a single woman and the tough choices she faces as a, as a bride with a mentally ill groom. Joan does get a scene where she can chew up the scenery. She's no doormat after all. Outside her bungalow, when she confronts the ex-husband, or sorry, the, wife, the husband's ex-wife and father, she gets to haul off with some choice lines. She calls Vera Miles a tramp and a slut and says they're both too evil for hell, which is really worth the price of admission, or in this case, the DVD. In the August 1956 issue of Photoplay, Cliff Robertson said that Joan Crawford was fully glamorous in the picture without all the trimmings of a glamorous wardrobe. Cliff might have also noted that Joan coached him through his role. He doesn't, though. He should have. She taught him what she knew about schizophrenics from the time when she observed patients in a psychiatric hospital for her role in Possessed from 1947. Joan observed that patients often assumed sidelong glances during medical consultations. Joan interpreted the position they held as defensive. They were guarded. They didn't trust the men in white coats. Patients didn't look at doctors directly, but only sideways, and their body language kept part of themselves always hidden in reserve. And you can see it in Cliff Robertson's performance that he's using Joan's advice. Autumn leaves works because of Joan. She's the whole picture, and she carries it as effortlessly as her monogrammed purse or a shirt dress and sweltering heat. Joan shows women how to cope and how to do it in style, whether she is hovering over the phone wondering if she should ring the men in white coats, or when she's pushing a shopping trolley in the market with Ruth Donnelly, who complains about the French butcher charging Paris prices. The moments of a woman's life are operatic, and Joan Crawford knew it. The acclaimed director, Curtis Harrington, began his career as an assistant and writer for hire for Jerry Wald, the producer who had backed Joan's best pictures in Warner Brothers. One day, Harrington, while working for Wald, joined his boss in the screening room at Columbia. They watched rushes of autumn leaves. In his memoir, Harrington spoke of it as a moment of epiphany, a revelation. He recalled, for the first time, 
I became aware of what the term movie star means. The word star in the context of a top movie personality is very appropriate since astronomically speaking. A star is a body that is illuminated from within. This illumination is what I witnessed that day in a projection room at Columbia Studios. The shoot had taken place during the summer. The camera was set on a close-up of Joan Crawford between takes, looking very wilted and ordinary, fanning herself in the heat. Then the clapboard was thrust in front of her, the clapper lowered, and a voice said, Scene 84, Take 3. In that split second, I witnessed an ordinary, exhausted woman center all of her energies and come vibrantly alive as Joan Crawford, the movie star. It was a metaphysical experience. And all at once, I understood the difference between a star and an actor. Autumn leaves was Joan's swan song in Hollywood. It wasn't her last, but it was her last as a resident of the film colony. The picture was a handy way to settle scores. She got to roll in the surf, smoking hot in a swimsuit, to make up for the scene she didn't get to play in From Here to Eternity. On the beach, in her swimsuit, or lying naked in bed being waited on by Cliff Robertson, Joan showed a woman can be super hot at 50. More importantly, in the picture, she proved she was an actress of formidable talent. What Joan didn't know about emoting on screen would not fill the price tag she forgot to remove on the swimsuit. Autumn Leaves was also the last picture she made as the full-time resident of the film colony before she moved to New York City. Although she didn't sell her home in Brentwood until 1961, her primary residence was on the East Coast after she married. Joan's business savvy probably guided her decision to leave after more than 30 years in Hollywood. By the 1950s, the studio system was on its last legs. Vicious tabloid journalism ruled the newsstands. For decades, Joan had built goodwill with the press. She provided interviews, tips and copy for reporters, and also developed personal friendships with columnists. But then a vicious hit piece by Roby Hurd ran in a series over one week in the LA Mirror in 1954, which probably paved the way for her departure. The tabloid hack argued, quote, Joan Crawford is perfect proof that our star system, which allows a leading lady to run the whole show, is the Frankenstein of Hollywood. The copy was fit to line cat boxes and bird cages, nothing else. Heard quoted dozens of people, anyone that, who had a bad word for Joan. And I'm sure it must have made, made Joan wonder why did I dedicate my life's blood to this industry in the first place? So she packed up and left town. Alfred Steele was probably the worst of Joan's husbands. And when I look at pictures of her wearing the brooch that Al bought during their battle royale honeymoon, I think of how successful she was in turning things around, even when fate dealt a bad hand. Joan never gave up on herself. 
And in the end, Al's glib behavior after abusing her and bestowing the service stripes brooch didn't have the last word. She survived him, outlasted him. He was just one of a hundred bastards she encountered over the years. In the end, he was really only good for one thing. He brought Joan to her fans. Around the world, they came out for her, not for the corporate goon or his soda pop. Everywhere they went, people came out to meet Joan, to thank her for giving them so many hours of pleasure in the cinema. And that's what carried Joan away from her fourth husband, this lasting legacy of her own. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. A Portrait of Joan, the Autobiography of Joan Crawford by Joan Crawford with Jane Kesner Ardmore, published in 1962. Conversations with Joan Crawford by Roy Newquist, published in 1980. Joan Crawford, a Biography by Bob Thomas, published in 1978. Refugees from Hollywood, a Journal of the Blacklist Years by Jean Ruverall, published in the year 2000. The Celluloid Muse, Hollywood Directors Speak Out, edited by Charles Higgum and Joel Greenberg, published in 1969. Robert Aldrich, Interviews, edited by Eugene Miller and Edwin Arnold, published in 2004. Nice Guys Don't Work in Hollywood, The Adventures of an Esthete in the Movie Business, by Curtis Harrington, published in 2013. Stay tuned uh, for next month for A Star Was Born, a new original podcast series about love and stardom. Thanks very much for listening.